what a joy it is to be together again in the Lord's house, to be able to come together at the end of a, a warm day of fellowship and worship, and to be able to finish off our Sabbath day by praising the Lord. It is our prayer that the Lord himself would encourage your hearts this evening and that you would go out into another week with the joy of the Lord abounding within you. We have come here tonight to worship God, and so we come into his presence, and I'd like to invite you to stand, please, with me. As we stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he addresses us, his people, and calls us to worship him with the words of Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you call us to worship you. We thank you that you have blessed us in Jesus Christ that you have made us your people, that, Lord, not only have we become a part of your family, but you have given us the gift of the preached word and prayers to pray, hearts to sing, minds to lift up to you. And we ask, Lord, that at the end of this day, that you would be pleased to smile upon us with favor, that you would be pleased to bless us, that we might indeed shout for joy, that we might rejoice with whole hearts for all that we have received in Christ. Help us, Lord, because we recognize it's hot. And when it's hot, our minds and our hearts can become drowsy and sleepy. And so we pray that you would overwhelm all of these things and that by faith we might look to Christ this evening. And be blessed in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let us worship God with the words of Christ is all.
If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be turning through to the Old Testament. For those who are visitors here this evening, we've been working our way through the Old Testament story week by week, following the narrative sections, and we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, and we will read through the whole thing. The people, if we remember, the people had asked for a king. The Lord had said he would do it, and now we begin to enter into that. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sack is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And, Paul, and Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up, to the hill, up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. 
When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me in the morning. In the mor- sorry, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Then Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof. And he lay down asleep. Then, the break of dawn, in, then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to the Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop there yourself for a while, that I may take, make known to you the word of God. One more verse. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over the people, over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And then he goes on to list off the sign. It's a striking thing, isn't it, this, this man that's chosen, this man that is led there by donkeys. You remember the earlier story when they put the, uh, the, box on the, uh, the box on the thing with the cows, and God makes sure that the cows go all the way back to Israel? Now we see the same thing, God controlling animals by his providence to bring about his will. The donkeys just kind of vanish, and they don't find them anywhere, but they find what God wanted them to find. But what's really, really striking is that we're told on two occasions that he will save them from their enemies. Now, you might not find that striking, except for when we come to Jesus, what are we told? He will save them from their sins. Saul could save them from earthly enemies, but he could never save them from their truest problem, which is their sin. But God has provided a king who takes away all of our unrighteousness. And not only that, he has opened the way, as we heard this morning, opened the way for us to come near to him and to lay our prayers down before his altar. So let's pray.
Amen. Do we have any children that would like to come to the front this evening? sit over here with everyone else? Yeah, nice. Good idea. <clears throat> well, there are some things in life that it doesn't matter if you know how it works. So let me give you an example. You don't need to know how your car works as long as it drives, right? As long as it gets from A to B and, and you know, you, as long as you can drive it, that's fine. Uh, you don't need to know how the engine works as long as it drives. Or think about this microphone attached to my face. I don't need to know how it works, I just stick it on and it does what it's meant to do. You know, there are some things, it doesn't really matter, but there are some things that really, really matter. You need to know how marriages work when you get married, because if you don't know how marriages work, then, you know, everything might go pear-shaped, right? You need to know how children work, otherwise you might, you know, put the pants on the top of the head instead of the bottom of the head, or you might put the nappy on the top of the head instead, of the... that wouldn't be good, would it? We need to know how things work sometimes, it's very, very important. There's one area of life that we have to know how it works, and that is our salvation. How we become saved, how we get to live with Jesus. How does that work? And we're going to be thinking about that tonight. We're going to see it's actually really, really really simple. There's a not, not by doing these things, and there's a like this. Don't do that, but it's like this. And so I want you to see, when you're listening to the sermon later, see if you can remember the not and the but, okay? There's a not and a but, and see if you can remember what those two things are and come and tell me after service is finished. But let's pray and ask God to help us understand salvation, because whether we're young or old, we all need to understand. It's fine, it's better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for these children. We do pray that just like them, you would give all of us understanding, you would minister to us, and that you would help us to be filled with knowledge and understanding of our salvation, the salvation that you've given us. We ask, Lord, that you would encourage these children, help them to understand the simple truths of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing before the throne of God above, and then, children, you can find your worksheets after that. Let's stand and sing together.
Bible with you this evening. We're going to be turning through to the little letter of Titus again, drawing near towards the end of it. But we find ourselves looking this evening in Titus chapter 3, primarily just the first part of verse 5, but we'll be looking, we'll read through the whole chapter again. 
So that was Titus chapter 3, and this is God's holy and inerrant word for you tonight. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, sorry, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. But not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let your people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we come to consider it, let's come before the Lord in a time of prayer. Lord, we, we pray for your help today. You have spoken, and we want to listen. But Lord, it's hot. We're drowsy. We pray that you give us attention spans to concentrate. We pray, Lord, that you would speak with such power today. That we would hear the word of Christ echoing in our hearts. We want to hear him. We want to see him. We want him to be glorified in the preaching of your word. And so we pray that, Lord, as, as I speak, that you, God, would speak to all of us. And that we would rejoice in hearing the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Mother Teresa is known for doing lots of really good things, isn't she? You don't have to, you can ask almost anyone. And if you ask them about Mother Teresa, people talk about what a lovely lady she was, what wonderful things she did. She, she said the following things. She said, love in action is what gives us grace. Each of us has a mission to fulfill, a mission of love. At the hour of death, when we come face to face with God, we are going to be judged on love. Not on how much we have done, but on how much love we have put into our actions. Love in action is what gives us grace. I wonder if you spot the problem with some of those statements. She was a Catholic, so she had a wonky theology. But I wonder if you, I wonder if you can hear the problem and I wonder if you can think about where that might lead you. If, if you have a theology that says, at the end of days, what I'm going to be judged on is whether love fueled everything I did. Where do you think that might lead you? Well, I, I, can, I can tell you because Mother Teresa herself told us. She's got a book of letters. Let me, let me read three Three little quotes. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, now let me just pause. Remember, this is Mother Teresa, the woman who did more than all of us probably put together, who ceaselessly gave herself for the cause of the kingdom and for the needy and the poor, cared for AIDS victims, like did everything, okay? When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, There is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my soul. Or, I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. One more. I feel just that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. Heartbreaking, isn't it? Absolutely heartbreaking. Of God, I think out of all of them, of God not wanting me. Why would she feel that way? I mean, if love is the way you get grace, and and if love is going to be the way you're judged of all the people in the world, surely Mother Teresa's all right, right? It's hard to find a more loving person than Mother Teresa. Why? 
would she end up in such despair and hollow and emptiness? And her letters are riddled with it. A, a heart crying out for assurance from God to be loved. That's all she wanted. All she longed for was to be loved by her God. And she, to the best of my knowledge, died without it. Why? Let me, let me point you to Isaiah quickly. You don't need to turn there. But Isaiah 64 is an amazing commentary on why Mother Teresa felt the way she did. Isaiah 64 verse 5 to 7 says the following. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hid in your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. You see, the reality is Mother Teresa was a sinner. And no matter how much she did, she could never know peace. Because she was always a sinner. So Mother Teresa is an amazing example of what happens if we look within. As I said to the children, we've got to know how salvation works. Mother Teresa is the picture of what happens when you look within for salvation. It is absolutely imperative, brothers and sisters. Absolutely imperative that you understand how you are saved. You may not know all the technical terms. You may not know all the theological explanations, but you must know how salvation works. Not because in knowing the theology of salvation, you become acceptable, but because with a wrong understanding of theology, you can go to hell. Having a correct understanding of theology will never save you. But a wrong understanding of salvation can destine you to an eternity outside of Christ. And this is why the, the primary doctrine that is, that is attacked by the devil, by the world, and by our flesh is the doctrine of justification. Martin Luther would say, well actually no one's really sure if he actually did it or if he was just summarized as saying it, but... Martin Luther said that the doctrine of justification is the doctrine whereby the church will stand or fall. In other words, if we get justification wrong, the church will die. But if we get it right, the church will thrive. It's absolutely essential that you lay hold of how you are saved. How you get saved. We saw this morning, didn't we, that, that horrible picture, that sevenfold picture of our depravity, of our ugliness in sin. 
We saw the way that it buries all the way down, that none of us are excused. And we saw the loving kindness of God that it appears in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he sets us free. He saves people. But the question is, how does he do it? You need to know how he does it, right? Because if you don't know how he does it, how are you going to have it? And that's all I want us to consider. How am I saved? How are you saved? How do we get to be saved? The most fundamentally important question. And we're going to consider it under two headings. Under two headings. Firstly, Paul says, not by works. Have a look with me at the text. Verse 5. He saved us. Now, just for your interest, that actually comes right after the rest of our text. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and then he conditions everything he's about to say because he really, really wants you to get the point. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. So there's two really important things to observe. And these, you know, sometimes we can hear stuff like this and we can just think to ourselves, Logan, like, come on, this is so 101. Like, we're a bunch of people sitting in a Reformed church here. We all know that you can't contribute for your salvation, right? I mean, it's very obvious. Everyone's thinking to themselves, I've got this down. I know that I don't have to work for my salvation. Have you ever noticed the Bible wants to tell us the same things over and over and over and over and over and over again? It's because we get it wrong. But he, Paul actually says a whole lot more in these few little words than at first glance you might think. And I want to point out to you two things that Paul is saying when he says, not by works, done by us in righteousness. Firstly, Paul is looking backwards to before we're saved, before we are regenerate. And he's saying, prior to your regeneration, which he's going to unpack shortly, prior to your regeneration, you were not saved by any works. Why? Well, Spurgeon puts it really, really simply. He says, we could not have been saved at the first by our works of righteousness because we had none. How do we know we had none? Well, verse 3, right? I mean, just look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Do you see any righteousness there? Do you see any goodness? This is us, right? We saw that this morning. This is all of us. I don't see any good works. I don't see any righteousness. So before your regeneration, there's, there's nothing that you have to offer him. So you can't have been saved by your works. And you go, oh, great. So now I understand. No, that's just the first thing. There's a second thing. The second thing is probably the thing that we get the most wrong. Or I should say, we are the most tempted to get wrong. It's not so much that we think we need to work in order to obtain salvation, like regeneration and stuff like that. Most of us have that down, not a problem whatsoever, I'm sure. The problem is the next step. Because what's quite interesting is Paul does not actually say... You are not saved by your righteous works. The ESV tries to capture what's going on here when it says, not because of works done by us in righteousness. 
It's a, it's a very clunky sentence. What, what Paul is, is communicating here is not so much that prior to you being regenerated, your works didn't contribute. It's actually the focus is on right now, that after your regeneration, the works you do, even the works you do post-regeneration, once you've been justified, those works contribute nothing for your salvation. And that is the area so often we get mistaken. We, we begin to subtly believe that, you know, God justifies me and now I need to make sure I'm a really good person to, to get the remainder. You know, it's almost like God brings us to neutral and now I need to work really hard to make sure I get across the line. We'd never say that, but subtly we begin to think that. Subtly we begin to believe that. Subtly we begin to wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, I did not do well yesterday. If I don't do well today, is my father going to love me? Subtly we begin to believe that the reason God continues to save us and love us is because we do enough. That's why Paul says, he says, not by works, those which were done in righteousness, those which we did in righteousness. You see, we, after we're saved, we do good works, right? A whole bunch of good things. The Lord enables us to obey him. The Lord enables us to follow him. The Lord enables us to become more like Christ. And we do things that are honorable. We do things that are lovely. We love our families but none of them contribute anything towards your salvation whatsoever. They are like filthy rags in and of themselves. Why? Because everything about you, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. This is something that Calvin gets unbelievably right. Everything about you is tainted by your sin. This, this is why the reformers would say, that every day I sin, all the time. Even your good things are tainted by your sin because you're a fallen human being. It, the, the, see, the problem of, of trying to give righteousness to God as though we had some is that every time we do it, we do the same thing as going out into a field and picking up horse manure and taking it to our wife and saying, I picked you some flowers. You, you may call them flowers, but they're not, right? There's something wrong with them. They're horse manure. And that's what it's like when we seek to bring our good gifts to God and say, God, look at this righteousness that I've obtained for you. Look at these good works that I've prepared for you. You have nothing that you can offer God. Now, we know that doesn't mean we're antinomian and don't believe in keeping the law, right? Because Paul's been telling us over and over and over again, there's a whole bunch of commands we have to keep. There's another side to this story, and we're going to get there. But you must come to terms with the fact that in and of yourself, there is nothing you can do to please God. There is nothing wholesome that you can offer to Him. 
Spurgeon says, God does not come to men to help them when they are saving themselves, but he comes to the rescue when they are damning themselves. That's you and me, right? We are busy damning ourselves and the Lord comes to us and saves us. Neither present nor past nor future works can contribute anything towards our salvation. This is why God over and over again has to remind Israel it's not because of you. Do you remember they're heading into the promised land and he says to them in Deuteronomy, Israel, when you get into the promised land, whatever you do, don't say, oh, it's because I'm righteous that I'm entering here. It's because we're so wonderful. That's why we received the promised land. It's because we're better than all the other nations around us. God says, no, it's because of my name that you are entering the promised land. It's because of me that you are receiving this gift. It's got nothing to do with you. Why do we struggle with this? Why is it that whenever someone comes to us and says, you can't do anything, that something inside of our nature just immediately reviles against that? Why is it that, you know, it just makes no sense, right? Like you go to an unbeliever and you say to them, look, you know the really great thing about the gospel? You don't have to do anything and God just saves you. And they're like, I don't like that. You're like, what do you mean you don't like it? It doesn't even make any sense. You literally do nothing and God just saves you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they go, I want nothing to do with that. And you're like, it's so easy. Like, don't try. Just no, no, don't do anything. Just believe. And you can have eternal life. It's that simple. And they just chuck it out. They're like, this is dumb. And chuck it out the window. And you're like, what's the matter with you people? What's the matter with these people? Their hearts are filled with pride. This is the most offensive thing to the human race because bound up in our hearts is pride. And because I'm proud, I want to contribute something to my salvation. I want to show God that I can do it. In my nature, I hate the fact that God comes to me and he says, Logan, drop it. You can't do it. You can't save yourself. Don't bother. There is nothing you can give me that will make me accept you. Just receive. Just receive. That is offensive to the very core of our proud hearts. And there's two, there's two really important uses that come out of this. Two really important applications that come out of the fact that we cannot save ourselves by works in the past, in the present, or the future. Firstly, the first application is it will destroy your pride. Praise be to Jesus. It will destroy your pride. Let it destroy your pride. Every time you feel your pride welling up within you, remind yourself, I am unworthy. I have nothing. Nothing good to give. Nothing good to offer my God. I am unrighteous. I am a pitiable wretch. It will destroy your pride. Let it. Secondly, let it fuel 
Let it fuel you to flee from self-righteousness. Run, brothers and sisters. Run from self-righteousness. Run away from any concept of earning anything from God. Because it's not by works, Paul says. It's not by righteousness in me. So what is it by? Paul says, have a look with me at the text. The wind blew my page. I wondered why it looked different. Titus 3, 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Praise the Lord for the word, but. I was going to say, uh, praise the Lord for, uh, for, for Allah, but I thought that might sound really bad and I might get stoned. You know, I'm not becoming a Muslim, but the Greek word for but is Allah. And I was going to be like, praise the Lord for Allah. And I wrote that down in my notes. I was like, yeah, I probably shouldn't say that. But now I said it. But now I explained it. So it's okay. Praise the Lord for Allah, for all of the buts, the contrast buts of the Bible. Praise Jesus that there's a but. Because without the buts of the Bible, you are dead in your sins. Without the buts of the Bible, you are left with no righteousness, seeking to obtain righteousness and perpetually failing. But God comes to us and says, there is another way. Not by your righteousness, not by your works, not by your striving, not by your efforts, but by my mercy, says the Lord. What's mercy? It's one of those words we throw around a lot, right? Mercy is generally a word that's used in penal systems and law systems where an authority where an authority extends freedom or pardon to someone who has committed some act of crime, injustice or something where a judge or a ruler or a parent extends mercy, what they're doing is letting someone off something. They're extending pardon. It's mercy. It's a compassionate extension of forgiveness. God is called in Exodus uh, the, the merciful one, steadfast in love, abounding in love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. It's the, that's God's name. I am merciful. So what does it look like? What does mercy actually look like? It looks like Moses coming to God when the people have rebelled again and again and again and again and saying to them, God, God, have mercy upon Israel. For your name's sake, have mercy upon them. It looks like David after committing adultery and murdering Uriah, having God come to him and say, I have put away your sin. It looks like Peter denying Jesus three times. I mean, not just once, but three times. Even swearing oaths that he has nothing to do with Christ and God coming in the person of Jesus Christ in John 21 and restoring him, though he deserves the same punishment as Judas. It looks like Logan 
receiving forgiveness after throwing away all of the riches of a Christian inheritance and upbringing, rebelling and living in sin, and being restored to fellowship with God. It looks like whatever, if you're a believer today, whatever you have received from Him, because everything you have received from Him is an act of His delighting mercy, an act of His goodness. See, that's the whole point. Why is it not by works? Because you can't do anything. Why is it by mercy? Because it's the only way anything's coming to you. The only way you're going to receive anything from God whatsoever is if God acts purely out of His own free will, kindness, and grace towards you. Now, the, the New Testament really, 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 and I mean really, wants you to get this in your head. Like if you forget everything else, that's okay. But get this in your head. Let, let me show you. Turn to Romans with me. We're just going to walk through some New Testament passages so I can illustrate to you the importance of getting in your head that it is not by works, but by mercy and grace. Turn to Romans. Start at chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And this is just some. Okay, we could just do this all night. But Romans 3 verse 28. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. By faith, brothers and sisters. Have a look at... Have a look at 4, chapter 4, verse 2. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Have a look with me at chapter 9, verse 16. We'll start at verse 15. He says to Moses, this is what I was talking about earlier. He says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Turn over a couple of pages to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 6. If it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Have a look at Galatians chapter 2. After Corinthians, skip a few more. Get your way to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Chapter 2. Verse Sixteen. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Turn to Philippians. Two more. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 9. Just before the verse 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. One more, Second Timothy. And then we're almost back to Titus. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as Douglas Milne would say, no word could more succinctly express the total undeserved nature of salvation since God is the one who gives salvation to us on the basis of his mercy alone. And we are the ones who receive it in spite of our being destitute of God-pleasing lives. This is salvation by grace alone. God forgives and God forgets by his mercy. Do you know three times in the Bible, God says he will forget your sins. So if God forgets your sins, how can you ever come and make it up to him? You've got nothing to make up. Because in the sight of God, you are perfect. This is the hardest thing for us to get our minds around. It's called the active obedience of Christ. It's that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ lived perfectly. And by faith, I have been given what's called an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is completely outside of myself. So that standing in Christ, united to Christ, I am welcomed by God, not as a former sinner, but as a perfect child. You know, so often we, we, we miss an alien righteousness. We lose sight of it and our, and our gospel becomes wonky and our gospel becomes God paying for our sin and leaving us neutral. As, as I've told you before, the illustration of the, it's the illustration of the bank client, right? He goes into the bank and he has a debt and he can't pay it. And the bank manager crosses off his debt. 
He's got no more debt. Praise the Lord, no more debt. But what's the problem? He's still broke. So he's got to start working really, really, really hard so he doesn't end up broke again. So he doesn't go back to bankruptcy. And so often we view the gospel like that. We view our salvation like that. As if God pays for our sin and brings us back to neutral so we can start working. And then we work and we get it wrong and we come back to him and he brings us to neutral. No, 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 no. That's not how it goes. He gives us the full, total righteousness of Christ. We have received an inheritance of gold. And we lack nothing. And so we never have to strive another day of our life to earn the favor and pleasure of God. Because we're perfect in His sight. Do you know how freeing that is? Do you know how freeing it is to wake up in the morning on a Sunday morning? Of course you won't, but on a Sunday morning and to think to yourself, I can, I can walk up into this pulpit and butcher it. I mean kill it. Like preach the worst sermon of my entire life and God is still going to love me. You know, I spent about three years preaching when I was younger, I spent about three years preaching with, with a theological understanding, woe betide me, with a theological understanding that deep down thought, if I don't do a God, good job, God's not going to love me. And I walked into the pulpit every single time I preached with a burden on my back that looked like Notre Dame. I looked worse than Pilgrim's Progress. Remember Pilgrim, the Christian the massive hunch on his back. I mean, mine was 50 times bigger. And I would stand in the pulpit with this weight upon me. And then I heard the gospel. And just like Krishna, it rolled down into the tomb. And I can still vividly remember, I will never forget that Sunday where I sat in Gisborne Grace Church where they, in the old building where they had this little room off the side. It was like a church office, and I would pray in there before I preached. And I was praying in there, and it just dawned on me, my father loves me, and he loves me just because he loves me. He loves me because of Christ. There's nothing I do to earn it, and there's nothing I do to get it, and I can kill this now, and God's going to love me still. And though everyone hate me and think I'm the worst preacher on the face of the planet, I'm going to work, walk out of that church service with the smile of my Father upon me. Do you know that smile, brothers and sisters? Do you know the free smile of God? Not one that you earn. So often, we're like the lady. This is a story I heard. This lady, and she would... She would always look up to her sister because her sister, her father loved her. Her father loved her sister way more than she loved than he loved her. And she despised it. And she just wanted her daddy to love her. And so one day, one day, her daddy was out and she thought to herself, my sister always irons daddy's shirts. So I'm going to iron daddy's shirts. And I'm going to iron daddy's shirts and then he's going to love me. And so she gets the ironing down and, you know, and she irons it and she's watched her sister do it. So she sprays it, she irons it, she makes them all clean, pristine white shirts. Her problem is she goes into the garage to hang them up, but she's too short. She can't hang them up on the hook, so she just hangs them up on whatever she can. So she hangs them up on the, on the rusty wheelbarrow. 
and the rusty rack. And, I mean, you know what happens, right? They get rust-stained. And Daddy comes in and he finds the shirts and he just scolds her, savagely scolds her because she didn't do it right. So often we view God like that. This view of God with a frown perpetually on his face because we're not good enough. Do more. Do better. You're not like Christ yet. Put your act together. No, that's not what our God is like. God would have taken those shirts and put them on. And he would have worn them into work. And his work colleagues would have said, what is with your shirts? And he would have said, my daughter ironed them. She's terrible at ironing. But I love her. I love her. I gave up my daughter. I gave up my son so that this daughter could be mine. You see, the reformers were right. Everything you do is tainted by sin. That's your problem. It's my problem. Even still, I'm still a sinner. But we've been united to Christ. Do you know what that means? It means I take that little pile of manure which is meant to be a bouquet of flowers. And I take my pile of manure and I say, I did it. I did it. I preached a sermon. I prayed. I labored. I loved. I cared. I did it. And Christ takes it. Christ turns it into a beautiful bouquet of roses. And he takes it to the Father and he says, Dad, Look what our child gave you. You see, it's in Christ that all of your works, all of your labors are accepted. All of them. That's why Paul can tell us to labor with all of our might. Because in Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we are accepted. One more story. Maybe you've heard of John Grisham Machen, very famous Presbyterian. John Grisham Machen, on his deathbed, wrote a letter to his uh, friend who was taking over from him in theological work. He wrote a letter to him. It was the last thing he wrote. And in that letter, he said, the active obedience of Christ. I'd be lost without it. All said and done, at the end of the day, the only thing he had to rest on was the righteousness of Christ. Do you rest on the righteousness of Christ, brothers and sisters? You are loved in it. Rest from your labors. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. We're sorry for our strivings in self-righteousness. We pray, set us free. Help us to see and delight in the mercy of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Let's stand and sing, brothers and sisters, Jesus, Messiah. Then please remain standing.
understanding. Brothers and sisters, as you go forth into another week, do so in the righteousness of Christ and with the blessing of God upon you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
to you.